Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, the show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another beautiful day for another fantastic interview. I have got Christy Lashoba with me. Christy is a woman who, like me, is no longer taking every day for granted and has gone through hell and kept going and is today a very different woman than she was several years ago. And I'm so pleased to have Christy here with me on my show to explore the lessons that she has learned and give you guys out there a chance to learn from her story. So you can choose then if you really want to do the same mistakes as Christy has done, or if you maybe want to learn from her story and move on maybe in a different direction than at the moment you're heading. So Christy, thank you so much for coming onto my show. I'm dead excited to talk to you. Thank you. This is great. Thanks mm. for having me. An absolute pleasure. Christy, you were, you, you have got a very turbulent story and a beautiful story. And it's sometimes hard to actually think, where the hell do we start with you? Um, I think I start by going really back when you were a younger girl and when you were sort of a, a teenager and romantic and uh, wanted to, to do something with your life. What was your dream? What did you want to do when you were a girl? I always loved fashion, so I wanted to be in the fashion industry, which Ooh. I was for a long time. Yes. Yeah. And fashion industry, tell me, so what did you do? What, how did you develop yourself? Well, I worked in retail a lot, and I worked in, um, in the manufacturing end, sold clothes to different stores um, and surf, surfwear and, um, and young girls and then shoes. And I ran the whole gamut of fashion, shopped a lot. And, um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was, I was all about the fashion for a lot of years, a lot of years. Was that because you truly loved working with the fabric or with hindsight, were there some deeper thoughts that, that with some beautiful clothes, you can cover up scars and cover up things that you maybe don't want to see, I don't want others to see? It probably is a little bit of both. Um, I love art and I, it's kind of a way to be artistic. I love dressing people. I loved everything about putting together an outfit and just having it pop. I, I loved all of that. And as you said, looking back, I can see uh, fashion was a way, clothes is a way to present yourself in a particular way. And um, as a young girl, I had things that I, that, I, that I used to hide because I had some medical issues when I was born. So I, I don't know, maybe subconsciously that was underneath, um, but for the most part, I just came from a family that really, my mom, my sister, and I all wore the same size. So we had three, three wardrobes of all different clothes and, and, and that was our fun that we did. So yeah, so <laughs> a little bit of both. And how beautiful is that to actually take someone who has got not really the, the kind of knack, the flair for dressing up and then changing that person into the kind of wow. And you see that in, in, in many films where sort of the, the country bumpkin suddenly turns into this absolute stunning wow uh, person. And yes, clothes are so powerful. Uh, it can be such a beautiful way of communicating. Because after all, 95% of our communication is nonverbal. So, right. and the way you dress, the way you behave, the way you hold your shoulders, all that works together to leave an impression within a short period of time. So uh, clothes make men uh, or something along these lines. I don't know what the right saying is, but it is, it holds very true. So yeah. you had a, a very powerful, powerful ability. Yes. Yeah. And, and it really, um, I loved bringing out people's inner 
um, if, when they were feeling kind of shy or not sure, I would help them be bold with, with their clothes, whether not just bold in color, but just bold and to say, how, how do you want to look and dress? And now let's do it. You know, I think a lot of women, we feel like we need permission to be a certain way, be bold, be powerful, be, um, be, be the way we know inside we are. And I didn't have a lot of tools that I do now. So I just use clothes for those tools at that time. Very good. So that was what, soon after school? So you were what, 18, 20, around about there about when you started that passion to make it a living? Well, uh, let's see, probably about then. Yeah. And then I was also going to school a little bit, but um, I, as I said, I was born with a lot of medical problems. So I was in the hospital a lot as a child. Mm -hmm. I was, um, I had birth defects and I was born in 1965. So back then any sort of disability was kind of shunned very much so. And so my mom, I know worked real hard at getting me into the regular schools. And um, I don't have a thumb on my left hand and I have a small thumb on my right hand and other um, um, internal issues. So I was in the hospital a lot. And so um, that's kind of where my, that's where my addiction started was um, with pain pills and pain shots that I got. So I, I was in the hospital and then I would come out and I'd work and I'd get in the hospital and come out and then I'd do school. So I was always, fashion was always part of it, but it was peppered with a lot of other health stuff at the same time. So I was kind of living two different lives almost, you know, sick and fashion is kind of. Indeed, indeed, right. Oh, please, I can I can so see that why you would escape into that beautiful Cinderella kind of of uh, dream to to dress up and 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 be that different you, because you didn't necessarily want to be that person there. You didn't want to, to define yourself as the person with the disability. You wanted right. to define yourself as this beautiful, young, vivacious uh, girl that is going out there and is having fun. Yeah. And then, of, then of course, with the fun uh, in, the, in the late teens, early 20s, did alcohol come into the game? Yeah, it did early on, you know, I think because I was so used to changing the way I felt with uh, Demerol and Dilaudid and morphine that was given to me by nurses and doctors. Um, so I always wanted, I always thought if I wasn't feeling just great, that I needed to change it in order to feel good. And so I remember the first time that I, um, someone bought beer, I think I was in ninth grade, and all I wanted to know is how many beers will it take to get me drunk? I don't know why I remember that clearly. Mm. Like, wow, it wasn't even like have a beer. It was like, how do I get the results that I want from mm. this? And so it was just kind of a way of life. I, for many years, didn't think you can just be doing life without a mind altering substance. It, it, it felt like... <laughs> That, that wasn't my life at all. And I thought it was always going to be like that. It's just, you know, if you don't feel good, you do something about it or, you know, change it, change it up. And you never quite got what you needed, except for maybe a fleeting second. And then it was worse. And, you know, the roller coaster. Beautiful. The fleeting second, isn't it? And we were so hunting that second. That was, oh, dear. Oh dear, oh dear. I feel, oh God, you, you're my twin sister there. Um, and you, <laughs> your, your mouth is speaking my words. So that's a bit spooky. <laughs> but then again, yes, we are children of the 60s. So at that time when you were young, alcohol was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. And did your parents drink? No, my dad would have a beer with pizza or Mexican food. Mm. So that's about it. No, they didn't drink. They Interesting. Like, yeah. Okay. I had it in my grandparents. Mm -hmm. My um, grandfather died of alcoholism. I think he was 40 something. So I had it in my grandparents, but my, my mom and dad said they will not, you know, drink or use and they didn't. 
and of course the, it was because your your uh, parents might have very well had the lessons given to them the hard way to grow up in a household uh, with an alcoholic uh, as a parent and that's a complete different story in its own right but you didn't have that benefit you saw the benefits of them being sober but you didn't see the black and white you didn't see the the life that alcohol can destroy but you only had a kind of a normal childhood the way it sounds and Uh, then you went out there and you wanted to, to make an impression. You wanted to be someone and you learned that alcohol and drugs can alter your, your mind. You can get rid of some of the pain. At least that's what you want to do. And you can feel more relaxed and less shy and all the other good things that uh, drugs and alcohol do. Yeah, and it was really for me, looking back, it was about emotions, because I had lots of things, lots of emotions like kids do. And when you're in the hospital, and you know, I had loving father, loving mother, my mom was like by my side, my dad worked, and he would be like the first face I'd see when I'd wake up in the morning, like, you know, almost begging me to be okay. And I could not disappoint him. I would say, I'm fine, you know, because I really never thought anyone really wanted to know exactly how I really felt. So I was always fine, you know, and they loved me so much. So I knew that that was my role. And um, so when it came to perceived negative emotions, I... It took me really (laughs) until I was like in my 50s in prison to understand that. So that's why I'm so vocal about it now, because women, I think we don't we we don't know that all the emotions that we have are make up the amazingness of who we are. I finally realized that because, you know, that's a whole other story. But it was emotions. I, I thought I always had to be a certain way for everybody. And if I didn't feel that way, then I wanted to alter it. And then I'm always managing that. And it's the people pleasing. Years go by. I know. I know, isn't it? The years go by because that is your your mind becomes so so fixated on that, but at a level that is not necessarily conscious. You always strive to be that girl that 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 others are happy with and if you have negative emotions you you think oh that's not right that's my fault it's i should be ashamed that i'm that i've got these emotions because i'm not not fulfilling what i have set out to be the the kind of ideal that i've created in my head that i must be and oh dear me and yeah i can i can feel you It's hard to manage others' emotions when you can't even manage your own. So if you can't manage anybody's emotions, then why try to just give me what you got to change it, you know? And then that would numb me out so I wouldn't even be aware of people's emotions. It's just, it's a vicious cycle, as you know. But then you were in uh, fashion, you had, uh, you created a life, you had fun, you were out there, and then Mr. Wright came along. Tell us a bit about Mr. Wright. Mm. Well, um, I I was like 25 or so, and I was still, um, I hadn't gotten sober yet. I was still in the throes of addiction, and because of my medical issues, people would make a lot of excuses for me. Um, well, she needs it. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I really don't, but, uh, you know, go with that. And so I met a man who um, was, he became a police officer and we were married for a long time. I ended up getting sober um, after we were married five years or so. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because I got pulled over by his sergeants, which was not <laughs> <laughs> okay so yeah there was the the the, the sign from fate <laughs> delivered yeah. as a two by four over the head uh yeah. wake up girl <laughs> i was in california um that's where i lived and i was i would have rather them taking me to tijuana than back home because i knew then i'd have to i knew the gig was up i knew i knew that 
it, that I was in deep trouble because I was on, actually on my way to the airport to pick up my sister and her family. And I had all these emotions. Again, I didn't know how to deal. So I took a few pills and I did that and it didn't work. And then I took more and then it was too much. And, you know, the cycle. And then I got pulled over, which was horrible. But thank God I did. And then I got sober. And that's, and that's actually when I started um, my own wardrobe styling business after I was sober um, for a long time. And it was really great and successful until I relapsed many or almost 10 years later. Hmm. Wow. The, the wardrobe styling is, of course, a disease in its own right. And with that, I mean, being self-employed, that's the disease, not the wardrobe styling. Yeah. Um, and the disease of self-employment means that you're working 16 hours a day because you're constantly out there. You are it. You're responsible for your fate. You know that the money needs to come in. And if the money is coming in, oh, great. But then you have to pay taxes and so on and so on. Was that your life? It was, although at the same time I was sober, but yet... I was just physically sober. I had a sponsor and I had been working the program, but looking back, I didn't have the deep emotional sobriety that I have now. I think because, you know, the first time I ever had any pain drugs was when I was, you know, a few hours old. So I, that was deep in me to, so to actually stop everything was very weird. It was like shocking, like, wow, I could actually hear birds sing. And it was, it was, it was surreal. So I, I was just going through that for a while rather than getting deep emotional. So while I'm doing my business, I loved it. I had the best clients and the best time, but I still had emotions. I wasn't, it was hard for me to make sense of it. And I always thought that I always turned it on myself. You know, you, when you have emotions that really don't make sense, like you can't say, Oh, this is why then I think what's wrong with me. I thought something was always wrong with me, which I now realize nothing was wrong with me, but no one ever told me I never shared. And so no one told me that nothing was wrong with me. We are crazy sometimes. Right. <laughs> no, that's, you have just nailed it. You have just described what every single person on this earth feels. This confusion, this this uncertainty, the little voices that keep telling you, oh, no, 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 there's something wrong with you. And you think, oh, okay, okay, you must know best. Yeah. And, and it's just, no, it's rubbish. Our brains, I don't know why our brains do that, but... All of us have these voices. I think one of these things is that you need to learn what to do with these voices. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <Of you. laughs> yeah. That's and and it's a lesson that we need to learn. Um, some of us learned a really really hard way, and but those who learn it and those who can manage these voices and those who can be mindful of really what is going on. And saying, okay, you try to warn me, okay, what for? What, what's your opinion? Uh, uh, no, sorry, completely wrong. Get off. Um, so that's good. So listen to, to these kind of things. But listen and then make your, your own informed consent decision and say, nah, that's rubbish what I'm thinking here. Um, you know, and I mean, I think that's, yeah, I think that's one of the. One of the downfalls about people in addiction is that it's a really isolating disease. So you're alone. You know, you're, I would always say I'm like my own private island. I wasn't alone per se, but I was alone in my thoughts because again, I can't manage feelings. So if I tell you what's going on, then I'll be expected to maybe manage them and manage them for you. And it was just too, I didn't have tools really, even in sobriety for, for the first little bit. So I, I think the biggest um, way to combat that is to share. That's why you're doing the podcast. That's why I'm sharing my story so that it dissipates shame. It dissipates um, the thoughts that say you are alone, you are different, you are unique, no one has those crazy thoughts. And then so when you say it, 
then you real and other people agree with you. Like when I went to prison, people started to write me letters about how they were feeling. I was like, now you're telling me, <laughs> I wish you would have told me <laughs> when I, I they, they may have, I may have not listened, but I, that was the start of me realizing and it's not just me. It's not just me. It's not just me. That's, that's why I've written my steps to sobriety, to share that and to, to put it out there. And there are quite a few stories uh, very similar to what you have just said, where I, which I've included in there to exactly describe that. It is, uh, there's, there's one chapter in there called The High Functioning Alcoholic. And it's basically all about the, 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 the features that we try to, to protect ourselves with when we are still drinking. And then the next chapter is the dry alcoholic. And that is exactly what you and I have been at times. I was able to stop drinking after having had some breath uh, alcohol, some alcohol on my breath when I came to work. And I, uh, I was under the, the protection of my medical counsel. So I had to get my shit right, I had to get myself clean. And I was clean and I kept clean, uh, kept dry for uh, several years. But like you, I was not dealing with the emotions. I scraped a little bit. I had for a short period of time, I had some sessions with a psychologist and that did just that little bit. And I thought, hey, great, it's done now. Wonderful. Um, and yeah, I had nowhere even gotten close to all the things, all the negative emotions in me. And guess what? Yes, I had dealt with a little bit of de depression then, and that was quite nice. But guess what? Life throws you new challenges. And life brings out old scars and turns out that they are still full of pus and festering, uh, despite the fact that you've heaped years of whatever on it. it is, the trauma is still there, and it still keeps trying to, to fester and come out. So this is what it is. It, this is life. So therefore, these negative emotions that you've described, they are so there, aren't they? And, and we need to learn about them. We need to, 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 to deal with them because otherwise you're going to end up like me, relapsing. And, and, and when I say relapsing, I thought, oh, no, 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 I've beaten the alcohol. It's all good. I can now drink carefully again, you know, because I'm, I'm a, I'm a grown-up. I'm, I'm in control. <laughs> Yeah, about that. Um, so, and then very quickly, I was in the bad old ways with new trauma and etc. So, you started drinking again. Um, did, how did that go? Was it sorry? Was it drinking, or was it the pain medications? At first, well, um, I ended up having several things happen emotion-wise that I didn't deal with, because my father dying of cancer, my husband having an affair. I was in a, um, I wanted to adopt. So I did a foster adopt program on my own um, because I couldn't have kids. And then I started to relate to little African-American boys being abandoned. And I thought, why am I relating to that? That was not my life at all. And it really touched me so deeply. Looking back, I think it was from all my hospital you know, stays weeks and weeks at a time and being left alone there. But at the time, I didn't know that. And it said something so deep that it kind of scared me. And so I, uh, I shared with one person, and but it, I, I didn't, the response I got didn't make me feel better. And I ended up going in the hospital for my kidneys and uh, a nurse asked if I wanted to, or not even asked you if I'll bring you a pain shot. And it was like, Everything stopped and I knew I didn't need it. I, I wasn't in pain. And, but I kind of looked around at the time I, I was seeing somebody who had relapsed. I met him in the rooms of AA and I uh, was by myself and I thought, I want a little bit of relief. And so I said to the nurse, yep, I'll take it. And I knew, I knew my heart, <clears throat> that was the worst thing for me to do. And immediately when I got it, I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I needed relief. 
And it was the old, it's just, it makes me emotional. It was just the old memory of like that lie that says I am enough, we are okay, Christy. Everything is right with the world now. Until it wasn't. And then I was like wanting more. And then they gave me tons of Vicodin before I left. And I ended up uh, not stopping. And the guy that I was seeing, I um, he had relapsed on methamphetamine. I went to help him and I, and I said, let me see what this stuff is. And I tried it and I couldn't stop. So that was after almost 10 years sobriety. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a binger. I'm the type that if I'm in, I'm in every day. And I stopped doing my business, which I loved my clients. I'd been doing it for quite a, a number of years. They counted on me. I, 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 one time I went when I was using and it was horrific because I'm trying to manage you know, using and being with my client. And I felt so much shame just envelop me. And so I said, I can't do this. And I didn't stop doing the drug or um, the drinking. I stopped seeing my clients and then it just spiraled down. And that's when I ended up selling, selling this drug so that I can still maintain my mortgage and um, still use every day. And that's how I relapsed. And yeah, it was, it was fast and furious. But then to a certain degree, that was the power of P. We call uh, methamphetamine over here in New Zealand, we call it P. And uh, it is an incredibly addictive drug and very, very powerful in its hold onto your life. And as you say, it goes very, very quickly, isn't it? Yeah, and I remember thinking I, I wanted to try that so that I could not do the pills and the and the Demerol, because that was my, that had my throat. I mean, that like had me. And I remember trying the, the methamphetamine and it made me not want the other. And I thought, okay, whew, now I cannot do that. And now this won't get me because this is, I'm not going to, you know, snort this every day. This is not who I am. But then that got me, that and GHB. And, um, and it's the whole lifestyle in regard to, the whole lifestyle, selling hotels, cars, it's all that. It was all that. And I didn't tell anybody. Mm. And so uh, I was alone and, uh, and I, yeah, and I couldn't stop. No matter what, I could not stop. <laughs> and my, meanwhile, my husband, my ex-husband, the police officer still in the town. So that's a whole other realm of dodging. And it's just, you get in this realm of, um, you know, when you look back, it sounds so ridiculous, but you just get in this, it's just another world. It's just another world, another realm. And, you know, I bake cookies and sell drugs at the same time and thinking that this is normal. In fact, that's why we, I got, um, the sentence that I did because think I was still in my mind thinking I'm doing a business like my wardrobe business. And I had a spreadsheet of different things and that's what <laughs> I know. <laughs> spreadsheet, stupid. But that's how I, I wasn't like thinking that I'm this, you know, I don't know. So yeah, spreadsheet, I'll lay it out. You're a very systematic woman. I give you that. That's beautiful. But remember, in most of the the Al Capone thing, uh, films, or or in all, in most of the stories, they hide the spreadsheet, not on a computer. Yeah. They they put it somewhere where it can't be found. Yeah, so, like a meat locker or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. But having I mean, denial, you know, when you're in denial, you think I'm I'm doing this regular business, and but it's just not this anymore. It's this and which is, it sounds so ridiculous, but that's how it was. That's denial. You have absolutely yeah. just nailed it. And that's what 95% of alcoholics do. Complete denial. No, I have yeah. no problem. I have no problem. I don't need help. Thank you very much. Uh, and that is, that is just a fact. One in 20 realize 
okay, hang on. Uh, it's not normal to have a $30,000 bill per year for snacks, um, yeah. as Robin Williams had put it. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. Uh, wow. So uh, can I ask with regards to your husband? You had this, this law enforcement link there, and uh, he must have brought home some of the work, not in specifics. We all try to avoid that. But there would have been so many run-ins with drug users, with drug dealers. Uh, he must have come home and must have been very anti-drugs. Was that, do I he assume, was. right? Yeah, he was, but he was also someone that would call me and say, hey, Chris, I'm with the guy you know, he's drinking, I just want to take him to a meeting. Can you tell me where a meeting is? So he was very um, compassionate. Oh, beautiful. Uh, yeah. So he was really compassionate. And I, you know, I would bring him lunch uh, when he worked in the jails, but, and I'd, he, there, I'd see a young kid in the holding cell with his hoodie on and I would just feel so bad. I'm like, can't you just let him out? I mean, I'm sure he didn't mean to do what he's doing. I had someone look at me like, what? But I really meant it. I don't, I think because I had so much compassion in that sense for people, not me. I mean, I hadn't gone down that road yet and was nowhere near that, but at the time, but I just felt, um, yeah, I felt a lot of compassion, but he, he was always good about it yet, you know, a little edgy about people doing bad things and, mm. you know, but they're, that's usually the cover up some of their own bad things. I can say that too. So yeah. How about how about alcohol? Because I know that that some policemen are very much hard working, hard playing, to to just let off steam. Uh, it is just he, he didn't too much because he had alcoholism in his life, um, in in his family. Mm. So and he, so I think he's used to being around that, but he didn't um, do that. So um, when, when I was arrested, uh, they arrested several people at the same time. And at the same time, they, they pulled my ex-husband aside, who was an Orange County Sheriff, and um, I guess investigated, asked him questions. And so when they told him what, what, what I had done, he had said, there's no way that Chris is involved with, with any of this. That's how kind of out of the ordinary or out of the school scope it was um yeah so he 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 ended up not getting in trouble because obviously he had nothing to do with it but it was very surprised that I had anything to do with it which, which is denial and alcohol and drug use and that whole crazy world that people don't think this right-minded person who's smart and has a business why would they do that 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 makes no sense but there are two things that uh, that you have highlighted there in that story. It's the hiding that we are yeah. getting so good in because you you become a master. You become a master bullshitter, and yes. uh, that is that is a degree in life that can be very beneficial. But uh, typically, when you meet then other bullshitters like like us two now, uh, we can smell that a mile away. The other thing that I find interesting is, uh, I know already the, the answer to this question I'm asking, but I'm asking that for our audience. Uh, how did you get found out? Because you were selling, to whom did you sell your, your wares? Yeah, we were selling, um, when we got caught, it was from selling to a priest. It was a secretary to a bishop in Connecticut. <laughs> I, I never met him. I um, still haven't met him, but yeah, <laughs> he was actually addicted as well, yeah. you know. And, and that is it. Guys, listen out there. If it doesn't matter who you are, who is listening in or watching this, uh, I, when I was in rehab, uh, we had anyone and everyone there okay yep. there are there are simple truck drivers who were addicted to pee to keep going 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 and there were film stars and there were vineyard owners and everyone lawyers teachers yep. retired people it doesn't matter addiction 
gets everyone. Alcohol is the great equalizer. It doesn't actually care for which social strata you are. It doesn't care who you are, boy, girl, don't anywhere in between. It doesn't matter. It just takes you. And then add a few drugs in and add a bit of pee in and a bit of this, a bit of that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the devil rides you. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, okay, yeah. that priest. Did the priest actually get done as well? He got um, time as well. Mm-hmm. Good, 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 yeah. good, good, good. Because I would, it's lovely to see that, that the law is equally then applied to uh, everyone in the same measure rather than uh, kind of, no, I wouldn't say that. He ended up, um, because he was selling to lots of people too. So he ended up, um, I think he was looking at a long time, but he got five years. But I know his parishioners came into the courtroom and really um, talked on his behalf of why they didn't want him to do any time at all. And the sad thing is, um, from what I heard, he is still not sober. I mean, he got out, but, um, you know, it's it's a lot of work and he has, you know, I'm not going to speak for him. I hope he is sober. Um, I still had never met him in person, um, but I, um, but yeah, so he got, a, he got way less time than he was. Interesting. Sober. Interesting. Okay. Which did that save his life? No, because it, you know, who knows? Maybe, you know, you just don't know. But um, yeah. Wow. That's, I think we could talk. No, 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 no. That's, that's a complete different interview. And Christy, maybe one day we'll, we'll we'll do another (laughs) interview to actually just look at the, the way that, especially in the United States, drugs and drug abuse is dealt with. And the, the many, many attempts of people to make life better by non-governmental organizations, by uh, individuals such as you. But there is obviously so much more going on. And in actual fact, I nail you down already. Yes, you and I have another another interview specifically for that. So guys, uh, look Look forward to to part two of that interview. (laughs) But let's come back to you. So here, finally, uh, a priest um, dops you in. Um, Cool. And that was, whilst you certainly did not want that, you were already, though, in trouble yourself. There you were basically struggling still with your emotions struggling still with the underlying problems, the trauma, the, the things that were driving the addiction. Because that's really what is always there. It is, yeah. it is the, the drugs are a, a sign, a symptom of an underlying problem. And so you were actually on the way to get help, just not the way you actually thought it would ever happen to you. <laughs> So when I knew what I needed to do to get help, I knew what I needed to do. I knew where I could go. I knew how to do all of that. But along with that came, that meant I had to face everything that I um, lost. I had to face my emotions. I had to face all the shame. And then I had to work with all of that with no substances. And that was too huge for me to do. Even though I had support, I knew I could get support, but the magnitude of what was what I would need to do was too much. So I just stayed under until um, until I went to prison. And then you're like, then it's then you know, you're kind of slammed on the floor and then the band-aids ripped off and everybody knows all your secrets. And it's like, it's a whole, that's a whole, whole thing. The, the priest was being followed. He didn't tell, he was being followed and he was getting on a plane to London that morning. And so we all at the same time, Connecticut, um, Las Vegas got arrested. Mm. All did five years. 
this guy, not this guy, forget about him. That is yeah. that is a different story. Yeah. When when it comes to you, when you came into prison, what was the support system for you? Was there, uh, were there mandatory uh, drug education sessions? What was the, was, what was the, the wraparound support that you were given? Well, um, that's, let's see. There was, um, when I was sentenced, I, I was in for a couple years before I was sentenced. And so I went to prison, I got arrested in Las Vegas. Then I went to uh, Oklahoma, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Texas. And by the time I got to Texas after I was sentenced, that was the first time there was any sort of a drug rehab type thing. It was called RDAP. And when you, in federal system, when you do RDAP, when you complete it, you get a year off your sentence. Mm. And so, um, you know, that everyone gets a year off and that's how it works if you complete it. And so I was actually excited to complete it. I came with to a, with a list of everything that I needed to do um, to work on. And um, the prison that I was at, because I had medical issues, they sent me to maximum security prison in Texas, which was far from my home in California, which was not a camp that my judge said that I was going to. It was, um, I was there, my, you know, my, my cellmates were, you know, serial killers that will never get out. Um, it was, it ran the gamut of lifers, um, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, lifers, and then there's me in there. And so I don't know why I have an idea, but I don't know um, the drug program there was in theory, it would have been really good, but they ended up either kicking each person out or the people quit um, because of the, like for instance, they they said, thank God that I couldn't be a mother because I would be a horrible daughter and a horrible sister. It was, it was <laughs> like shame to, and I'm a fighter. So, and I would do whatever they needed me to do in order to get a year off every, you know, a lot of, everybody would pretty much. And so, um, it was, it was a, it was a defective program. It was, um, I was running this morning and I was listening to this song and I'm like, Oh yeah. I mean, I, I still have feelings in my body that I didn't know that I could have for the way that they treated people. I don't know if it's because the prison got more money. Well, in that prison, you get more money if you're if you're there because it's a medical issue. They also said they had me as a um, they they designate care levels, and so they put me at a care level three, which meant I needed help with getting dressed in the morning, bathing, and eating. And I was like, what? And then at the same time, I'm working landscaping, mowing lawns. So. I'm uh, I can't number one you don't help anybody get dressed in the morning in a prison that that's not an option but they get more money for that yeah exactly so that kind of like really um strengthened my bewilderment of government and power and the criminal justice system because I didn't need to be at a maximum security prison in Texas. Um, so, and getting kicked out of a drug program. So I got kicked out because they said I wasn't authentic and I wasn't in touch with my emotions. I'm like, well, no crap. I, I wouldn't, I know that <laughs> if I was, I would not be here. And so, um, yeah, I got kicked out. So I had to do a whole other year. In prison. Huh. Yeah. So that so was sense of the drug program. How the hell did you get your head right then? What changed? I, I broke at that point. I was like literally the prison was on an air base and um, I would watch the jets go by and I would think I am as smart as that guy in that jet. I know. And I got kicked out of a drug program in prison. What the hell is happening? Like what is going on? So I, um, that's when I pretty much broke. I was just devastated and I couldn't make sense of anything. I couldn't make sense of what the hell was happening. 
And really from that moment, um, I had a great boss in landscaping who was doing a 27 nonviolent, 27 year nonviolent drug offense, which is a whole other story. And she was very um, kind to me and she would, um, she would assign me a flower bed and she'd be like that, just go there today, just and there's not a lot of flowers in prison, but it was the whole process of like breaking everything that I thought that I was, everything that I thought I needed to be down to like devastation. And the fighter that I am kept um, building and, you know, uh, I, 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 I was close to ending it all, but I'm, I didn't. And so I just kept fighting for myself and um, realizing the different capabilities. I had my boss, the, the main boss in there, the officer was very nice. He hardly said any, anything the whole time I was there. But I, I said, I got kicked out. Like I was shocked and, and I was supposed to go home very shortly and they kicked me out at the end and I had to do another year. So he said, lash over, I don't think they're used to someone like you in there. And that just gave me that tiny glimpse of, okay, I'm not a horrible person. <laughs> I'm not this like horrible person. And so I just spent that next extra year um, finding out who I was. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So I'm not saying I needed that to be where I am, but I used it to um, get to now, I think it's very interesting that I speak to people about authenticity. It's very heavy on my mind as I'm speaking to people about authenticity, knowing that just a few short years ago, I had to do another year in prison because I was inauthentic. So it's very interesting and surreal. Yeah, isn't that, yeah, it's crazy. But you know what? Now that I was in that prison and all those things happen, I'm such a strong kick butt advocate for all of that. I like I have visions of going back to that prison with those people, not the inmates, but the the officers, you know, and um, yeah, wouldn't it be amazing to be their boss and just like. Uh, I think just for you to actually offer them to hold the talk to the prison guards and actually say, look guys, I was here, you might remember me, and uh, here I am now, this is what I'm doing, and this is how you make me feel. This is yeah. what was going on from my mind at the time. Would that not be such a beautiful thing to do? That because, would be amazing. Yeah. 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 To, to actually, because these people have got their own prejudices, they've got their own trauma, they've got their own pain, they've got their own wife who has cheated on them, they've got their own mothers, fathers who were alcoholics. So there's so much going on in them that they are living their little blinkered lives. And suddenly to see someone like you might actually give them hope because they are looking just at the inmates and think, oh, what society has come to look at all these these trash people and that's sort of the the kind of defense mechanism that you want to build up you want to you want to sort of you know just okay that's them and i live such a different life to actually break down these these kind of defenses and make it a true yin and yang and make it a true acceptance that addicts do horrible things they are not horrible people necessarily. So it is a big, huge, well, a big, a huge difference to in that 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 thought. We addicts, we do stupid things. We so does everybody else. Right? <laughs> True too. I don't like when people point to just addicts or prisoners, because I've met a lot of people that are CEOs that have done some crappy things. Uh -huh. They could still wear a great dress and a great pair, a great pair of shoes, and have money. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that. You know, it, it really shocks me when I'm walking. You know, if I'm dressed up and walking and I get this response from somebody and I'm the same person that was in shackles, 
that was in black box shackled with women that would like bring their kids aside, like looking at me that way. So we all have all that in us. Mm. Don't you think? I I could not agree more. I could not agree more. And that's the weird thing that we're, that we are recognizing. And that is what makes you and me so powerful in our voices because we have got this conviction that we actually know that it's normal to be a saint and a sinner at the same time. We are both. We are, we incorporate all those aspects, all those nuances, all those facets. You don't just have one mask, the nice mask, the beautiful mask. If you only believe in that, if you truly believe that this is your life, oh my God. No, the negative emotions are just as much part of you and they are there. So learn how to deal with it. Uh, that's, but that's easier said than done. You need to be shaken and taken out of your, your circumstances. In your case, by going into jail, and not just any jail, but maximum security. Uh, in my case, by people that love me saying, no, enough is enough. You will yeah. not work now. We you will go into rehab and you like it or lump it. Uh, you will go or I'll divorce you, in the words of my wife. Yeah. And it is, I, I was full of shame, guilt, all these negative emotions. But then to be actually an inmate in my little prison for a very short period of time, just four weeks, yeah. was the best thing that ever bloody happened to me. So uh, it it rattled my cage yeah. and it actually broke my cage. Uh, I was able to literally turn free by starting over again and yeah. dealing with the emotions and doing it slowly, slowly to get to... I mean, how was it for you when you actually got out so you finally your your sentence was over and you saw the sunshine again the first time as a free woman how what was that flow of emotion like and, and where did you go from there I um I actually moved to Oregon where I am now my mom and my sister had moved there and so I thought that it would be best, even though I've lived my whole life in Southern California, um, but I wanted to be near them. I wanted my mom to, um, I want to spend time with her and she was real supportive while I was in there. So I just wanted to be near them. And um, it was, it was a slow, interesting, now, now I have all those emotions I'm, de- I'm paying attention to. I'm not afraid of them. I'm Uh, you know, I'm solid, you know, in like, well, you can do this and you can live here and you can be in solitary confinement. You can do this. You can get on a bus. (laughs) You can do all these things. And one by one, um, doing that, the the thing that helped the most was sharing because I wasn't going to tell anyone where I was. I mean, why would you tell anyone you were in prison? That would be, there's no reason for that. But um, as I told somebody, the response was different than I thought. It was very um, curious and loving. And and then it made me feel freer. And so I just kept hearing that and experiencing that and sharing a little bit, not just little tiny, like almost like you're testing the waters and people, the, the response was really quite lovely. And so, um, I, I just kept doing that and it really turned into a very, uh, that, that's what got me, got rid of shame and got me feeling more confident and confidence. And I went to a reentry program that would give me some time off my probation and cause I had five years probation and I had a beautiful judge there who, um, 
who would come once a month with people that had just got out of prison. And she, she's the one that's put most of them away in Oregon. And she would say, okay, you did your time. How can I help you? And so people would go around the room and she would help them get licenses, help them with whatever. It was really amazing. So around the the judge, federal judge, police officers, DAs, um, counselors, um, and prisoners or ex-cons. And so around the table, we would say what our, our month was like, and she would be right there helping just in her regular clothes. And so for me, she said, well, you're going to college, right? And so I said, well, I think I'm kind of old. I'd like to go, but I, I, you know, I don't know what I want to do. So I ended up going and, um, graduating last year. Um, and so, that little bit of college helped me get more confident. And I saw, well, I am smart and all these support and confidence and doing scary things, even though that's hard and scary, you do it anyway. I'm thinking like I walked into the college, I'm like, okay, I'm nervous to walk in. Cause you know, you said, where have you been for five years, you know? And so I'm sure housewives understand that if they haven't worked for five years, people are like, where have you been? You know, but um, I had to just draw on the, the um, really tough circumstances I was in not that long ago to say, Christy, you can do this. You can talk to someone. And I think it was a divine, um, a divine grace for me that each person was very loving and supportive that I had never met. And I just kept experiencing that constantly. So that makes me want to be that person for other people as they're getting out of prison and making sure they have that support. That's so I'm doing, I'm helping with college, coming out of prison and um, recovery, all that kind of stuff. So things are good right now. <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. I mean, please, you're, you're underselling yourself big here, isn't it? Because you are really starting to lift that. You're starting to, to become your own strong voice and your own advocate for people who have been in similar shoes uh, than you. You've just started in a new, new link there, haven't you? Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, well, it's shocking to me sometimes how bold I can be with my voice when I am a perceived, I'm not a judge, I'm not a senator, and I'm on a Zoom meeting with them, and I, but I'm bold enough to, to speak my mind, and I think, and I'm kind of surprised after, but I think it's because I have the experience, so I feel like I want you to know what it's really like in there, so when you send somebody, I want you to know you know, exactly what happens. And when you talk about having college in prison and those five prisons I was at, there's no college. You learn to crochet an ugly bear. You learn to about national park lifers learn about national parks that they will never go to. They won't attend. So there is no lifting up. It's punitive. There's no reform. And so um, I'm passionate now that I, because when we're in prison and you say, you know, the guards have their own stuff, they do but they also have all the power. You're in a cage and they have all the power when you can use the restroom, when you can go outside, if you can go outside. If you have two oranges, they will take one orange. So it's it's more than just, um, you know, people have their stuff. It's you're so powerless that it almost, it's, it's kind of, I, a little taste of what's going on in the world now with the whole COVID and masks and all that, all the things taken away from people on a tiny, tiny, tiny scale. But um, so now that I have a voice and people are listening, I, I'm very um, bold about saying how people, when they get out, they need opportunities. They need to be able to go to college. They need to know that they are smart, that they can achieve and that they're lovable, and that they are no worse, no lower than the CFO sitting next to me. There is no different. When I started a thing with women um, called Women Fight Night, um, and I, it's, it's in my town, and it's really women stand up and tell a story, like a testimony or story about their life, so other women can get encouraged. And so I asked them one night to write a little note to the girls, some of the girls I left behind in prison, just a word of encouragement. So they did that. I'm trying to bridge 
community that have never been experienced prison with people in prison. So they each can see how they're no different. And so what I was shocked to find was um, people that were writing the prisoners, the women, they were, I thought it would be a quick little Bible verse or a nice quote, but they were telling their secrets to these women in prison about their own addiction, about you know, divorce, about taking care of aging parents. And what hit me so hard was right before we wrote that stuff, they were all sitting there nice and pretty looking at the speaker, not sharing any of the turmoil going on inside. And I thought, oh, that needs to change because that's why if you throw a deep addiction in there, that's what can take you down. And so my voice is to um, you know, try to pull that out of people so they know they're not alone and they're not ashamed and they're no worse than anybody else. And try to try to kind of destigmatize and have people know that they are that they're we're all the same, same needs. You just happen to be in a jumpsuit with a black box shackled and you're driving a Mercedes, but some of the same stuff's happening. Right? So beautiful. Not ah, oh, so beautiful and so spot on absolutely spot on if i talk quietly to friends and acquaintances and they know that i have gone for some interesting times they are not too afraid to share with me and the amount of shit i hear the amount of stress and troubles and and tribulations they go through is enormous yet uh, very few are sharing very few are unless unless they bump into me or, or you know they 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 come into a situation where they perceive it to be safe and perceive it to be to be okay and in all fairness writing things down well, that's actually reasonably safe. And in, in this particular case that you mentioned, to send it to one inmate who will uh, probably never, ever go with that, oh, look, go to the, to the I don't know, newspaper and, and blast it out there or go onto the intranet. Uh, nah, that won't happen. So I think this was a little bit of a safe environment in which they felt they could share. But how beautiful it is to share. Uh, it is, it is, it's the connection. It's the yeah. sharing that is such powerful. Yeah. Remember, remember guys out there, there is this beautiful experiment where rats were given the choice between water or, or opiate laced water. And yeah, they always went for the opiate laced water. Uh, then the researchers changed the whole thing. They actually went uh, to build a dream park for rats. So where they could go in there, there were other rats and they were playing, they were running and were doing things that only rats can do and beautiful. And then they had again, the same choice, the two kind of little things, either choosing water or heroin laced water. And guess what? They chose the water over the heroin list water because they had connection, they had fun, they went out there, they in their little little rat uh, environment, they had a great time and there were there was no room for drugs. Mm -hmm. And here you go, same thing, connection, openness, transparency, uh, joy, mm -hmm. passion, yeah. all those things, all those beautiful things, uh, they, are the key ingredient to living a life so so meaningful and powerful something you deserve something you you should aim towards and christy you you have had the unique circumstances that allowed you to develop that passion and for that you are i mean to just listen to you uh, puts me in awe it's Mm -hmm. Wow, you are you have become a a very powerful woman there, a very powerful voice, which I think is sorely needed. Um, in when I listen to you describing the prison system over there, and regrettably, I I, I do not have the insights to compare the the prison system here with us, uh, but my educated guess would be that it is probably needing similar 
similar yeah. issues. I'm not sure about the, the power games that are being played. I cannot dis discuss that, but I, yeah. Now there's so much more. I think there, there's, we'll talk about it in, in the part two of our, of our interview and discuss far more in detail the prison system uh, in the United States and, and maybe your vision of, of how could it be in the future. So when, when Christy is president of the United States, where do we go from there? <laughs> Christy, it was such a beautiful interview. I'm, I'm very, very humbled uh, that you gave me your time and shared your passion and shared your insights. Uh, you are a great woman. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing where, where this power of nature is going and what you will create in due course. So uh, thank you very much for coming. Is there any parting words you want to uh, tell our, our people here, our viewers? For example, how can they get hold of you? How can they learn more about your story? Well, I have a website called um, christylashover.com. And there I just um, give some book excerpts. I'm writing a book and I have the proposal done looking for an agent. Um, but it's a, it's a really good book. And again, goes back to sharing. And, um, and yeah, and I have tips on journaling, a downloadable sheet that you can go to to learn the, how to, why it's important to journal, which is what I did when I first got out every morning. That's what kind of grounded me is to journal the, talk about I'm okay I can be a light and love in this in this world although I have nothing but I and that just I could build on that so I thought that that was really important for me and really just the parting words is that um you know uh I, my the way I live my life right now I tell people is that if the like you were saying in the beginning the voices you know if the voices um are negative or tearing you down or don't make you feel good, then those are lies. And if the voices are supportive and joyful and cheering you on and assisting you, then no, then that's true. So if, if that's a good way to decipher if you should listen to it or not. And though that way of thinking has really um, kept me on the track of being positive and um, not letting those other voices, you know, lie to me to tell me to be quiet. <laughs> I love so, it. That's for everybody. What better closing words for this beautiful interview? Christy, look after yourself and the same to you out there, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.